0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going?
1: I'm all right, thanks, Ed. I'm just musing on one of the great riddles of our time what what is better than a guinness and better than (laughs) a wank
0: Mm. Hmm. yes if only a dead princess could tell us
1: (laughs) how are you ed
0: good i like you have been enjoying seeing (laughs) screenshots from diana the musical flitting across twitter uh i've not watched any of it because I do value my time somewhat. <laughs> um, my, although, having said that, I did just spend like 55 hours playing through Yakuza 5. So like what I consider to be a valuable use of my time, and what other people think is a valuable use of their time, uh, obviously varies. But like, that game's great. Uh, I had a great time with that. But yes, uh, no, I'm fine. Um, To continue the saga from last week, I got the car back.
2: Yay.
0: It's all running very smooth. I did have a... a I hazard to say fun moment because it's kind of scary, but uh, as soon as I got in and realised they'd replaced the brakes and just kind of like feeling how different they felt to the brakes were before they replaced them, suddenly realising, oh yeah, this car was in a bad state. <laughs> and I I didn't realise it because I just like drove it all the time and just thought, oh yeah, that's about, that's how hard you have to slam on the brakes to to make it stop. That just seems fine. And now that they react like super smoothly, suddenly realising, oh yeah, this was probably <laughs> probably the right time to to swap them out but yeah that's that's more or less it in terms of what's been going on with me this week so let's hop straight into the news it was a fairly busy week for news uh one of the big news stories that we've been kind of checking in on over the last couple of months came to a surprisingly swift end with the news that scarlett johansson and disney have settled the lawsuit that she had uh brought against them for lost earnings from black widow going on for streaming Uh, No details have been officially released about what the settlement was, although Deadline reported that some of their sources said that the total was somewhere in around the $40 million range, which was pretty close to the $50 million or so that Johansson was asking for. And considering that, as we mentioned last week, Disney have basically stopped their whole um, premium rental releases for their movies that are in theatres, it seems like... A pretty resounding win for her, although somewhat disappointing because obviously one of the the reason why this lawsuit I think got a lot of attention aside from the fact that you know one of the most famous actors in the world is Sumi <laughs> like the biggest media company in the world was the potential for it to kind of have like really massive reverberations in terms of how actors are compensated in terms of how details around, uh, deals around streaming are worked out and things like that. Uh, And obviously, that will not be happening now because Disney uh, seemed to want this to go go away and the quickest way for them to do that was to spend X millions of dollars to end it.
1: And this is also why I felt very reluctant about the whole deal because it was Scarlett Johansson.
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: Because... She does not seem like the kind of person who's going to take it uh, on a systemic level.
2: <laughs> no. Uh,
1: I hope she has fun with her money. This isn't like a de Halevand settlement, you know? Um,
2: no.
1: And I didn't think it was going to be. Obviously, hope out of hope. I thought it had the potential to be. Um, but no, because I, I don't think she's a very good person, Ed. I'm just going to put that out there. Um mm so we'll we'll see but you know what does it set a sort of precedent because that's how the law works isn't it there there may be some kind of way of uh qu- quoting it you can tell how good i am with law i watched several <laughs> seasons of the good wife yes yeah. um but yeah, it's disappointing because I think Scarlett Johansson is ultimately uh, quite a big figure in white girl boss feminism. So I'm, mm. I'm out on this one, I'm afraid.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, hopefully, the next person that goes after Disney or a similarly large company around this will have like a hotshot lawyer and her kind of slightly shady investigator assistant who spends. Less and less time together as the years go on for reasons that are never specified. And I think uh, just
1: more Alan Cumming would be
2: think, <laughs> as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other news, the Many Saints of Newark: A Soprano Story. I think its uh, subtitle is, or that's what it appears in some of the uh, some of the promotional material. I'm not sure. I'm I'm reasonably sure David Chase probably wouldn't have signed off of that as the full name. But the Many Saints of Newark is in theaters and on hbo max this weekend i haven't watched it yet because um i'm trepidatious about it i mean yeah the the response to it has veered between people saying it's like really good really interesting it's kind of a interesting kind of critique of nostalgia and other people saying it's not very good so i'm kind of like leaving it a little bit to kind of eventually watch it But its release is obviously kind of like a big deal because The Sopranos continues to be a hugely influential show and much beloved. And accompanying the release of the movie, it was announced that David Chase has signed a big first look deal with HBO where they'll be kind of like working on various projects, including uh, presumably uh, more stories set within the universe of The Sopranos. Uh, the mythical world of New Jersey. Um, oh,
1: if only it were real. <laughs>
0: uh, if only Italians were real. Um, <laughs> basically, both Alan Taylor, who directed The Many sins of New and Chase himself, have basically said, um, when asked, you know, would you do a sequel, have both said, uh ah, sure, maybe, who knows. But presumably HBO are making this deal now because they want to kind of explore more of that universe and... Also, you know, I'm sure Chase has other projects that he would really like to get made, and his kind of career post-Sopranos has largely considered a projects not happening. Um, he wrote and directed a movie called Not Fade Away, which came out in 2012, and has some very kind of vocal defenders. A lot of people who saw the movie really, really liked it. The problem is not a lot of people saw the movie, so uh, his kind of like feature directing career hasn't really gone anywhere since then, and like every time it's been announced that he's been working on a series of some sort it tends to fizzle out after like a year or so so it's interesting that chase who kind of famously didn't want to make tv shows wanted to be a filmmaker kind of fell into tv because it was the only gig going Mm. accidentally revolutionized the medium (laughs) in ways that are still being felt like over 20 years later and is now kind of like returning to that after like some being someone reluctant to do more Sopranos stuff it's kind of an interesting development in his career potentially sort of sad and melancholy um, in terms of like how m- much his uh, other endeavours have been frustrated but you know I choose to take the kind of like the more optimistic view of it which is that you know he has found people who will make it easier for him to make work actually that, that actually makes it out into the world
1: yeah, I mean, I also have not yet watched uh, *Soprano Babies*, but uh, <laughs> I hear similarly mixed things, and it's never going to touch the Sopranos. So I think we just need to ex- come in on that ground level and be fair. Mm. Um, I love that David Chase is just the most sort of sardonic uh, pug of the TV landscape. Like, <laughs> of, of course, it's the pioneer who didn't want to be there in the first place. I think that's such a fantastic, compelling, odd (laughs) uh, figure in our culture. Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of like how Billy Connolly started out as a musician and then the bits in between the songs was the stuff that people (laughs) really responded to. And he's one of the greatest living stand-ups. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I'm really excited to see what David Chase us next because of course I am um, but then I was also really excited about the Romanoff's <laughs> head and I feel like mm, mm, mm. Um, I speaking about Many Saints of Newark also made me think of another acting dynasty and father and sons with the licorice pizza trailer yes. dropping so that all of us could could see and I mean obviously I really love the look of it and mm-hmm. I'm excited that one of the one third of Heim um, is there because I just think the Heim sisters, it feels kind of unfair to talk about actors' looks because <clears throat> it can so easily be construed into something patronizing, discriminatory, just horrible. But I just love the Heim sisters' faces. like they look incredibly striking and very real if that makes sense mm-hmm. so like i'm so excited to see her as clearly this sort of like 70s figure of possible obsession for this lad but the poster gives me hope because she's front and center looking very fucked off and and uh, young coop is uh in the background looking a bit out of focus so it might be another dynamic heavy hitter from PTA cuz i do think his best films are one on one as it were um mm-hmm. So we'll see but yeah I'm I'm happy to slide back to the 70s 80s sort of any any time other than right now I guess.
0: Yeah. Uh my favorite response to the trailer was someone posted that image of Ben Platt screaming in The <laughs> Revit Hansen just saying like Ben Platt reacting to all the people not saying anything about whichever Heim is playing in high school if I defi- despite being 27. <laughs> Which is just a testament to how much better Licorice Pizza handles that, I think, than Dear Evan Hansen did, because, like, she's she believably looks like a high schooler in that, yeah. And the makeup job they gave him did not do him any favors.
1: Also, you know, as far as I'm aware, Licorice Pizza doesn't horrendously twist uh, themes of mental health for odd, clickbaity, uh, rubbernecking kind of plot points but Mm.
0: Uh, in other news we have the strange story that apparently Ridley Scott is working on making Gladiator 2 Mm. Um, apparently this is something that he's been kind of like toying with for a few years now but now he's kind of actively trying to make it his next next project after his movie about Napoleon that he's currently making with Joaquin Phoenix and Jodie Comer which uh will probably come out like next year but the the clip that he is knocking out movies these days, and I just wanted to mention it because apparently it's not based on the Nick Cave script for Gladiator Two that often does the rounds online and which is a wild wild time um <laughs> but if people would like to experience that version of the movie, you can listen to uh, an old episode of this show that our uh, departed co-host. Uh, Matt Risby did where he talked about the script and had some dramatic readings of it which is
2: mm-hmm.
0: a hell of a lot of fun and very well well done so if you want to experience some version of the Gladiator 2 we could have had uh, go back into the archives and check out the episode it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, also a kind of new project that was announced and that you and I talked a little bit about beforehand, but kind of had to cut it off because we were just kind of like talking about it so much that we realised <laughs> we should probably start the show, uh, was the news that Steve Coogan will be playing uh Jimmy Savile in a forthcoming project for the BBC called The Reckoning. Jimmy Savile, for uh, people who may not be aware, was one of the most popular entertainers in Britain for much of the latter half of the 20th century, and also one of its greatest monsters, a man who... After he died in 2011, it was revealed that he had been sexually abusing uh, children, possibly hundreds of children, using his position as a hugely popular television presenter to shield himself and also being shielded by the BBC, who he worked for, by figures in the government, and basically was just allowed to, to just live an absolutely horrifying, depraved life, which no one... "Quote unquote, no one knew about. There were lots of rumors about it that you know people would joke about, uh, particularly people who worked in film and television. I remember there's a intro to this morning with Richard not Judy, the, the Lee and Herring uh, live early morning comedy show that they were some for some reason allowed to do." Where they opened, where they were both dressed up as Jimmy Savile, and there were obtuse references to horrible things being done to corpses. So obviously they had heard these various rumors, and I think there were lots of people within the film and television industry in England who had heard these rumors, but no, but no one like necessarily knew, uh, or a lot of people didn't know. Certainly not in people in the general public.
2: Mm.
0: So what this kind of like raises to me. Is why they would want to make this movie because all this this series whatever it ends up being because as I said Jimmy Savile died without suffering any consequences for his actions he died rich he died a knight he died an icon and then in the year or so afterwards suddenly all these horrible things came out and the reckoning against him happened with him in, in absentia essentially so that raises the question how do you tell this story in a way, where he is a character that doesn't just end up reveling somewhat in, like, his depravity. Because I find it very hard to think of a way that you do this where it doesn't come off as just horribly exploitative.
1: I mean, that's it, isn't it, Ed? Because I feel like it's mainly because, from what I can gather, general question within the discourse is still how did nobody know which Mm. is incorrect because probably hundreds of people knew and these were people in positions of power who could have stopped him that's the issue and Mm. let's not forget the BBC did a big tribute show for him yeah and their inquiry was pretty toothless and Savile is the most egregious but not the only one within sort of a culture in the BBC in the 70s so in terms of addressing that question that you've raised I think oddly enough I kind of don't want to see anything about Savile I want to see the actual people because it's a whole systemic thing. Mm. And I was really impressed by the Danish series. I think it's The Investigation. It might be An Investigation, I can't remember. Um, but is a dramatised account following the detectives assigned to Kim Wall's case, the journalist who was brutally murdered in a submarine and they all know that this guy did it but what hinges the unfolding of the program is their procedural effects to do it by the law because they want to put him away but they know that if they mess up anything he has a chance of walking free. and it's gripping and I think it manages to just be on the right side because we don't see the perpetrator once Mm. and because it gives you the faith that you already know that this horrendous thing occurred in real life yeah and I think that's what I'm more I'm more interested in how the story got out rather Mm. than even risking re-traumatizing anyone because Savile's victims were, it's not only the number that's horrifying, but also the spread generationally. Yeah. You know, there are people our age who he molested. And and way back, like, it was incessant um, abuse. He's, like, a full-blown psychopath. And it's not even that you had to... Be aware of that. It, it's just that sort of thing of he just wasn't a very nice man. Mm-hmm. And looking back at kind of the Louis Through interviews with him and Louis Through coming back and trying to be like, oh, what did I miss? And it's like, well, you didn't miss anything. You were it was clear to you that he was off, <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as the youth say, bad vibes. But because he was protected, sus, very sus. Oh, deeply sus, like anti base, if anything.
2: <laughs>
1: I. I, I've been watching TikTok, but it's not that this is the difficulty with with talking about monstrous people and looking back. Like you you feel the fear already and you don't feel that you're able to do anything.
2: <clears throat>
1: and it's not on the fault of various people who who felt this. It's the people it's the people who absolutely knew and protected him. So I don't want to look at the depravity, I want to look at the how it managed to come out at all. You know, kind of like, not that I'm a huge fan of the film itself, but I think Spotlight definitely came from the right angle.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And the fact that, st- I think because Steve Coogan's doing it as well, there feels like this slightly grimy sort of maybe like acting grab to it, like a slight mm-hmm. of awards pull.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a big bafta sort of role. Gritty
1: BAFTA, gritty BAFTA. Because you don't have Steve Coogan as Jimmy Savile and then barely use him.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you know yeah. what I
1: mean? So I don't know if I've answered your question, Ed, but hopefully I've put forward what I'd like to see if this has to be made at all. Because it just brought to mind um, this film that may, may or may not be called off about the Christchurch suitings, which Jacinda Ardern has said completely correctly, absolutely not, um, mm. that Rose Byrne may or may not be starring in. And something that's been released quite recently in the UK on Channel 4 Help, starring um, Stephen Graham and Jodie Comer, um, which sort of documents the initial devastating wave of coronavirus in care homes in the UK. And I just think kind of, but what's the point? Because we're too close to it to get any sense of closure. So at this point, all we're going to get is rubbernecking trauma. Yeah, and that's not going to help anyone. And I already know Jodie Comer and Stephen Graham are excellent actors. Like mm. they don't need to then use this. It's just it's all leaving a very bad taste in my mouth, which means I'm still negative. If I can taste that, surely. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think in, in terms of trying to think of like what would be a good way of handling this, the two films that came to mind to me were The Assistant from last year.
1: Mm. Oh, God, uh, I love that film.
0: Uh, which I thought did a really good job of being about a Harvey Weinstein-style abusive executive without depicting him or his abuses, instead just showing the culture that exists around a person like that and that protects them and the impact that it has on the people around them. I think that movie did that expertly. Um, the other one uh, that I was thinking of in terms of if you wanted to take make a movie about say, if it ends up being about the investigation, which presumably it must be, if it's called The Reckoning, because The Reckoning didn't happen until after his death, and it's about how these things came to light, then I think a good model is Good Night and Good Luck, um, where Joseph McCarthy shows up in archive footage. They don't have an actor play him. He just shows up on the TV screen, and then people watch it, and they react to it, and you know that spurs them on. And I think that... Is potentially a more helpful way of approaching it. You address directly the fact that for so many people, the Jimmy Savile that they knew was the one who appeared on their TV screens, and then the characters in the the show are then digging into the true details. But then you don't actually have to depict him because he's dead by that point. He is just this image on a screen that you are discovering the truth about. Mm. And then, like you say, casting Coogan does feel a little stunty. Totally. In a way that possibly detracts from what they're trying to do.
1: I I agree. And like I was just about to say, you know, I love The Assistant so much. I think it's such a powerful film that lays bare the culture. Because people talk a lot Mm -hmm. about a culture of this and a culture of that. And I've never seen a film that's managed to capture the culture so acutely. And mm. crucially, again, you barely see this guy, but his, yeah. but his power is felt and his hold is felt. Like you 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 feel the stranglehold yourself as you're in this atmosphere. Um, so yeah, I'm not. Also, it's am I right? It's called the reckoning. What reckoning? Yeah. What reckoning? Mm. None has happened. And oh yeah, <sighs> no, thank you. <laughs>
0: Uh, in other British TV news, it was announced that Russell T. Davis is coming back to Doctor Who, which I mentioned mainly because, like, you know, I I used to watch Doctor Who all the time. I used to write re- episode recaps of Doctor Who back when I was uh, really into it, sort of in the early uh, the early couple of years of Stephen Moffat running the show. Um, but I fell off uh, around the end of Peter Capaldi's first uh, series. As the Doctor, and have never really felt much of a desire to go back to it, despite really liking Jodie Whittaker um, as an actor. But this does kind of like pique my interest because the Russell T. Davis version of Doctor Who was the one that got me into it because you know I grew up during that that period of time when Doctor Who wasn't on the air, so like it was a really good introduction to it, and I felt that he kind of had that. Yeah, you know, people kind of like uh, maybe knock him for sentimentality or whatever, but I felt that he had a really he he found a really good balance for the couple of series that he ran that show, for kind of like big goofy populist Saturday TV entertainment and injecting some of the the, the scares that Doctor Who uh, is kind of like renowned for and generally bringing a lot of humanism to a character and a series that could very easily become like no no pun intended alienating um to people I am intrigued to see if he can come back sort of ten year longer than that you know like seventeen years after he revived the show originally in time for the show's sixtieth anniversary to try and kind of you know reinvigorate it to regenerate it if you will um, um again in you know the like the example i Think of in comparison is like martin campbell directing golden eye and kind of bringing bond back into the 90s and like making it relevant again and then 11 years later coming back and doing the same thing for casino royale after the series kind of <laughs> driven off a cliff um, um like i'm i i'm interested to see if russell d davis can kind of come back and do something with the show again especially since you know like the in-between years for him between leaving the show and coming back have been like fairly fairly fruitful for him i would say like he's created a bunch of shows that have been like critically acclaimed and well liked so it'd be interesting to see what he brings to the show now like years later
1: it's wild how russell t davis is now the safe pair of hands because mm, i think yeah. he's even before doctor who is renowned for creating some of the most iconic and important british tv ever like Mm -hmm. particularly even just recently it's sin um which i won't go into now i was not massively keen on but i understand the importance of it and i don't want to uh piss on anyone's chips slash we aren't really getting into that just now but i actually really liked wait is it years and years but that's the name of the band oh god i have been watching tiktok i promise (laughs) With Emma Thompson and the family, and was it called? Hang on, sorry. Bear with me one moment. Was it? Oh uh, yeah, I know the one you mean. It is called Years and Years.
2: Yeah.
1: It, it, things can more than one thing can be called Years and Years. It turns out, <laughs> um, which again, I I like that he just keeps taking chances because I was with that series about half of the way, and then it lost me for the other half, but I kept watching it. And if anyone hasn't listened to his Desert Island Discs, um, I thoroughly recommend it. And it's just incredibly beautiful, the way he talks about his late partner and caring for him. Um, So I think he's in a very different place, having had this significant bereavement. And is, you know, so I'm, I'm interested to see how that's sort of coming into his work as well, because I think in years and years and it's a sin, there's a marked difference now
2: um, mm. to
1: his writing. Um, but it's funny that it's like, oh yeah, let's get back the good Doctor Who, the tea time he And it's like, I remember when everyone was kicking off just because there were incidental gay characters in it for the love of God. Um, <laughs> but he he understood it and continues to understand it. And I'm really excited to see what he does because I dropped off from being, uh, I wouldn't ever call myself a hoovian because I don't, have the same level of fandom that Hoovians do, and I think that's not something I want to—a title I want to assume because they really deserve it. You know, the the level of devotion that this show inspires in people is something else, and I think arguably it's one of the first major uh, fandoms, really. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's. <laughs> I think it's also because it's just been a parade of like white, straight men who've taken the mantle. And as much as uh, I quite enjoyed a lot of Jodie Whittaker's tenure, particularly her messages at the beginning of the pandemic to children, like, oh God, you want a sob fest? They're right there. Um, I found them very helpful, personally. So, yeah, because I think it would be amazing to get back to basics but Russell T Davies basics are amazing because he was the first one to kind of slow drip an incredible finale he had genuinely brilliant twists and turns the emotional resonance the really excellent balance of light and shade and also a Christmas episode with Kylie come on Mm -hmm. what more do you Mm -hmm. want it's literally campus Christmas so yeah bring back the king I say RTD we've missed you
0: and finally, for our new segment, uh, Saturday Night Live is back uh, for its 47th season,
2: mm-hmm. I, I believe. Yeah.
0: And uh, it's notable for a number of reasons, one of which being that the cast is the largest it's ever been, because over the summer, only Beck Bennett and Lauren Holt, who was one of the sort of featured players who was only on there for a year, left, and then they added three new cast members, including... Uh, james austin johnson who is probably best known for his kind of like viral videos where he impersonates trump going on these kind of like weird uh stream of consciousness conversations where he talks about like a more girls or whatever which uh, are hilarious and really capture the very weird cadences of the former president of the united states and I read earlier, David Sims wrote an article about the premiere for The Atlantic, which I thought was very interesting in terms of talking about how, you know, they hire, they finally hire someone who they can get to do a Trump impression and they have him do a Biden impression, <laughs> which just seemed to be maybe a uh, summation of some of the problems that the. Show in general has, which is the, and this is something that I think can be applied year after year of the year, where they hire exciting voices in comedy, people who you know people are interested in, like Bo and Yang, you know, more a couple of years ago, and then struggle to think of things to do with them within the rigid structure that that show has kind of like codified over its, as I said, forty-seven years on the air.
1: Oh God! I mean. I am a huge fan of uh, Seth Simons. I think I've spoken about him before. Independent journalist whose newsletter, Humorism, is spectacular in terms of the depth of the investigation and that he goes into, how much he devotes himself um, to these things and how absolutely correct he is about everything, which is terrifying because everything he's correct about is kind of scary. Um, But Mm -hmm. his latest issue of that newsletter was kind of an in-depth internal dialogue about SNL and I can't help but feel that we're kind of creaking into the last few seasons of SNL well Lorne's gonna, basically Lawn's gonna take it with him isn't he like I
2: mm-hmm.
1: I can't see it functioning and continuing without him and it's just wild that one man has basically made all of the decisions for 47 years. But there seems to be a trend over the past, I'd even say 15, 20 years of welcoming in the internet and kind of the Lonely Island's tenure, sort of, um, even though Yorma uh, Jakomi wasn't sort of on the SNL writing team or featured players akira Schaefer and um andy sandberg obviously were fundamental to snl digital shorts which i think gave mm-hmm. <laughs> gave snl a huge shot in the arm because if it weren't for that and it weren't for things being uploaded on youtube i you know i think i've watched more snl in the past 5 years than i ever have before just because of this move to the internet but it's where everything's starting to meld together because good neighbor of um Beck Bennett, um, Kyle, and I forget their writing partner, who's generally backstage, but is Emma Stone's partner. There you go. I know that. But they kind of were known for doing really quite out there sketches. And then it's amazing that they sort of bring these people in and then they don't do anything like that at all. Like you mentioned Bo and Yang there and also A.D. Bryant and how A.D. Bryant more often than not is in full makeup as herself, but also made to put on a bad wig and a suit because she's still the fat chick. So she plays men in mm. uh, in cold opens as politicians and stuff, and it's not trying to do Aidy Bryant down because I think she does wonderfully in in drag impressions, but she's not being mm. she's not being pushed forward as herself as she is in all of her other. Um, material and yet i mean james johnson johnson is the most phenomenal impressionist and he featured so heavily in the show to the point where it's like oh you're not a featured player you are like they're angling for you for main cast because you can just fit anywhere um mm-hmm. and i think he'll become a real um i think mikey day you know i think he's just gonna sort of he, he can be a uh the linchpin of a sketch and be like the straight man but he's also clearly got like the wacky chops um under there i it's hard to say that i wasn't i I was just massively disappointed that sarah sherman got hired because i think she's incredible and i don't know how much aka sarah squirm sorry for anyone um who is you know an eric andre writer and um does incredible like mixes comedy and visual art and has made the internet her own and it's just like it's just saddening and maddening that SNL still seems to be the precipice for everyone to reach like you and I were sort of bemoaning a few months ago how it doesn't matter if you are a really interesting uh, director of colour who does fascinating personal pieces such as Chloe Zhao and Taika Waititi doesn't matter you're just going to be like sucked into the Marvel vortex so Hmm. I am I am watching and like it was distinctly average Owen Wilson was quite sweet there were little moments that were kind of nice but again knowing how the sausage is made I don't think any more of us can ignore it for that much longer but I don't know maybe it's more of a kind of New York institution that the world happens to look into um but I thoroughly recommend (laughs) Seth Simon's Humorism because the way that Lorne Michaels behaved during the pandemic was atrocious. So that's how I feel about that. Hey, it's live from New York. <laughs> it's the <laughs> apocalypse.
0: Yeah, I think at this point, probably the best hope for SNL creatively and maybe just in terms of the health and safety of the people who work on it is. Lauren retires, someone else takes over, and maybe they allow the talented people on the show the chance to try different things. Because it really does feel like the Lonely Island was like the last really big shift in what SNL could be. And other like you say, good neighbour, like I always think that like Carl Mooney's like short films that he would put on there would be super funny. Yeah. Um it doesn't feel like anyone else is like really doing much to innovate it. I mean, you can just look at, like, Weekend Update is just, like, so staid and uninteresting. And uh, David Sims noted this in, in That Atlantic piece as well, like how nothing illustrates how kind of lacking in a real edge and voice um, SNL has now than them doing a tribute to Norm Macdonald by playing a load of clips from when he hosted Weekend Update. Yeah. And suddenly realising... Oh yeah, he said stuff that got people real mad and he was fired for it, but he was really funny. And these guys uh don't say anything that would really anger anyone and they aren't funny.
1: Yep, that's about it.
0: So we'll go on to the main topic for this week. It's a show and tell episode where each of us brings something that we've seen recently and and we would like to kind of like talk about in a bit of depth. Emily, what have you got for show and tell this week?
1: So for show and tell this week, I have the Fascinating film, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: directed by Bill Ross IV and Turner Ross, uh, a sibling filmmaking duo. And I'm pretty sure this is their debut feature. How, how do I describe this film? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it is kind of the film version of creative nonfiction is the mm. easiest way to put it because documentary isn't quite right and i don't think fully appreciates the effort that's gone into the film and the very unique situation in which it was made so we focus on a bar called the roaring 20s it is an absolute dive of a bar but it is the spiritual in every sense of the word home of this ragtag community and we follow them over a full day which is the last day that the bar will be open because it has been sold by the owner in the frequently gentrifying neighbourhood of Las Vegas that it is in, Nevada, the desert. Now, it features one professional actor and the rest of the cast are patrons and staff of this bar. And it seemed to have been a loose, semi-improvised sort of day. But I think they genuinely filmed it over a day and edited it down. Uh, I think people were actually drinking and actually taking drugs. But it ends up, instead of being this wild, sort of hedonistic send off, it ends up becoming kind of a wake up call for everyone in one form or another and everyone's very wise and thinks they've got it and there's like these really beautiful moments of like tenderness and strangeness and intergenerational anger and a lot of empathy and healing and a great pair of 60 year old titties amongst other things but it is one of the most stark portraits of alcohol I think I've ever seen (laughs) Mm -hmm. um And that is the veracity of it. That's the thing that cuts through, that you realise how so many people are in pain and they are just trying to numb the pain in one way or another. And it is just this beautiful, sprawling, loose canon of plots and subplots and characters. And in terms of how it was actually produced... There was some complication about shooting in Las Vegas, so it ended up being shot in Louisiana, but everyone's basically there. Anywho, Mm, um, mm. it made me realise I probably needed to stop drinking, and FYI, I have nearly a month of of not drinking, and I think that's it for me. As one of my best friends said to me, oh, you did a speed run. (laughs) Yes, yes, I did. (laughs) Completed it, mate. And I think it's hard not to look at it and feel the deepest empathy for everyone there. And know that alcohol is not the solution and is causing them more problems. But what else can they fucking turn to? Um, there's so much compassionate heart and no easy sentimentality and a lot of cold light of day shot through it as well. But I've never seen anything quite like it, Ed. Like you can there's kind of like flashes of like, oh, that's quite Cassavetes in house, sort of. Feel so incredibly there with them, but no one's pretending it's not happening, even if they don't look directly at the camera. Ah, oh, it stayed with me, and I think it's going to stay with me for a really long time. And it's also going to be my recommends because fuck it, I've, mm-hmm. I've talked myself into loving it so much more, and everyone needs to see it. I believe it's on the BFI player in the UK. Um, I'm not sure uh, how to see it elsewhere, but bloody nose, empty pockets. It was, uh, I believe it was available for rent. Let me see if it still is.
0: Bloody, not Bloody Mary. <laughs> can I get a Bloody Mary? <laughs> yeah, it looks like it. it's available for rent over here, so like anyone in America who wants to watch it uh, can can find it fairly easily. Yeah, I really want to watch that movie. I wanted to watch it last year, and I just never got around to it, uh, particularly like during The Crush towards the end of the last year, where I was trying to like, watch as many movies from last year as possible. But yeah, like as soon as it played at. I want to say it must have played at Sundance from last year because I seem to remember a lot of people talking about it. Like just Just as as the world was shutting down and then like everyone re upping their kind of like pieces on it around about uh, July of last year or whenever it was that it came out. And yeah, it it just sounded like so fascinating to me and it does feel like a fairly unique uh, endeavor because like. I don't know like what else would you compare it to like maybe like i guess there's some of mike lee in there maybe like the way that he makes his movies um like his improvisational quality but obviously seemingly like less even less structured than that
1: absolutely um it did indeed premiere at the uh, sundance film festival in 2020 but oh yeah i i'm just gonna stop talking about it because I want everyone (laughs) to see it What have you got uh, to show and tell this weekend? I have
0: uh, Malignant the new movie from James 1. It is of course October, the uh, scariest of months. Second scariest after April if you have tax problems (laughs) Um, So I've been trying to watch horror movies uh, this month. Um, I watch horror movies like most of the year but I feel like October you really have to kind of like put the hours in and uh, watch some more so uh, I kicked it off with Malignant, which came out last month on HBO Max and in theatres. A little bit of a flop in theatres uh, because it, it came out, I think, around about the point when things were really getting bad with Delta here in the US. Um, uh, but I, I think it seems to have found like a, a decent audience uh, online, uh, streaming-wise. Certainly um, everyone I follow on Twitter who's super into film watched it and had very strong opinions about it, mostly positive. Uh, I would say, and I was looking up details on it earlier, and I think something like seven hundred thousand people streamed it the weekend that it debuted, which uh, feels like a, a decent number, I guess. If uh, if every one of those people had bought a film ticket, it would have made like an extra sort of ten or twelve million, which is like nothing to sniff at. But like I say, it's directed by James Wan, who is uh, probably the most important. Filmmaker in American horror these days, or oh. over the last couple of decades, he uh, created the Saw franchise, directed the first movie in that series, and kind of oversaw a lot of the subsequent ones with his uh, writing partner at the time, uh, Lee Wanell And then after that, went on and created the uh, Insidious series of movies and the Conjuring uh, series of movies, which have all been like hugely successful. He's he's someone who has. You know twice over kind of really shifted the focus of mainstream horror you know yeah. like saw really ushered in the quote-unquote torture porn kind uh period of the extreme horror in american uh film uh horror filmmaking that kind of really kicked off in the the early or the mid 2000s and kind of kept going and kind of burnt itself out by the early uh 2010s and then Uh, I feel like The Conjuring really kind of kicked into the interesting ghost stories again, Um, particularly kind of like classy, nicely shot uh, ghost stories, which felt like a kind of a something of a response to the rise in found footage. So he he has kind of often like helped shift what is considered to be like the main mode of horror. And I don't know if that will happen with Malignant. I would like it to because I thought Malignant was a blast. It is Goofy as Fuck.
2: <laughs> um,
0: it is about a, a young woman called played by uh, Annabelle Wallace. Uh, last week we were talking about actors who feel like they're cast because they look like other actors. And uh, this movie has two really good ones. Annabelle Wallace has an eerie resemblance to Numi Rapace, uh, the, the same. same kind of otherworldly cheekbones. And uh, another, uh, the, the actress who plays her sister, uh, Maddie Hassan, is the spitting image of Florence Pugh. Mike. Like, it's eerie. Again, eerie how close they look like other, sure. other. um Annabelle Wallace plays this uh, woman who, uh, at the start of the movie, is uh, pregnant and, and married to uh, an abusive husband. He uh, assaults her at one point, and then shortly afterwards, he is brutally killed, seemingly by a home invader. Um, Over the subsequent uh, couple of uh, days, Annabelle Walsh's character has visions of this same strange, mysterious home invader killing other people. And then it becomes... The movie is basically about what is the connection that she has to this killer? Why is she having these visions? The resolution for that is
2: wild. (laughs) It
0: is (laughs) real real strange stuff, Um, but it's very fun. The movie very, very clearly has a strong giallo influence, Uh, giallo being the kind of like strain of Italian horror movies from the 60s and 70s. You know, it's got this kind of really expressive camera to it, um, both in terms of, you know, lighting and composition, which is all like really kind of like beautiful and stark, but also the moments that wan chooses to like move in and zoom in or or close up on someone there's a hilarious moment where uh wallace's character this is a this is a slight spoiler but it comes early in the movie so um she reveals to her sister that she was adopted and then the camera zooms in on the sister's face with like the greatest portents
1: of (laughs) Of like like, oh my god, (laughs)
0: she's adopted and
1: they were roommates (laughs)
0: yeah it's so it's like that's the kind of tone it's working on where every revelation is this kind of like cataclysmic thing um the music in the movie is really cool it uses a this is perhaps an indication of why i like this movie it's very very obvious in why it's doing but it's very deliberate about how obvious it is so the leap motif of the movie is a cover of "Where Is My Mind" by a group called Safari Riot. It's kind of a electro cover of "Where Is My Mind," and the first time they played it, I kind of thought, oh, "It's a little obvious, isn't it?" You know, like ever since Fight Club used that song, like anytime, anytime a show or TV uh, or a show or movie uses that, I just kind of think, "Oh God, you're just doing the Fight Club thing again." Um, not coincidentally that was also the moment that i gave it one uh mr robot mm, <laughs> when yeah. that very famously used it in his like final episode of the first season i was like oh fuck off. Yeah. Um, um but then uh malignant uses it again and again and again and like every time there's a major event and it only uses the bit that's like the part which sounds like incredibly eerie in that cover and i think the fact that they just keep going to it, like, really won me over. It's like, okay, yeah, James Wan knows what he's doing. He knows <laughs> that's a really overused song, so he's gonna overuse it so much that it goes back to being fantastic. Yeah, and yeah, I just, I just really, really dug *Malignant*. I think it's, it's so much fun. It's so gothic. It's so over the top. You know, it opens with the shot of a hospital, which kind of looks like a, like a factory also like a location from bloodborne that's hovering on a cliff over the side of a sea and also it's revealed later on that apparently this is in washington state which is really funny because like that's not what any buildings in washington state look like um and then also uh part of the movie of the movie like largely takes place in seattle and um they have a bit where they go into the underground tours that they have in seattle which for anyone who's never been uh, Seattle is essentially a city built on a previous version of itself and you can go down into the subterranean parts of the city and wander around and see like abandoned bars that were built upon after the city burnt down in the early part of the ninety 19- of the 20th century um, and it's a super cool tour and when I went on it a few years ago like my first thought was like man this would be a good location for a horror movie it's creepy as hell and uh, James Wan apparently had that exact same thought because uh, there's an incredibly creepy sequence set in uh, that exact same tour. So uh, good, good eye from James Wan on that <laughs> one. Um, but yeah, I, I just think if you like your horror to be a little over the top, visually like very striking, and just like that that is clearly made by someone who's having a hell of a good time trying to do something a lot wilder and stranger than he usually does, then I cannot. I cannot recommend uh, Malignant highly enough. I think it is just such a delight. It is easily one of my favourite movies of the year and uh, a movie that I wish I had gone to see in a cinema instead of watching it on HBO Max because I think it's the sort of thing, and particularly like a packed cinema, which maybe I would be less keen on at this point um, in time, but um, it's the sort of movie that I think would play Really well with the crowd, particularly a crowd who are new to it and don't know like what strange directions it's going in.
1: Uh, anywhere where people kind of hoot and holler as much as they scream is exactly my kind of idea of a good, a good spooky season flick. So I might have yes. to get a whirl.
0: <laughs> it's definitely a hoot and holler, uh, <laughs> rebel <rubble laughs> movie, and also um, one of the kind of intertextual delights of it was that after watching it i finally understood why i had seen loads of people quoting doing like the one perfect shot thing on twitter where but instead of a shot from the movie it was a particular joke from freddie uh, freddie got fingered Oh,
2: okay.
0: And suddenly understanding what that was in reference to i found very very funny
1: wow so i've already done uh recommends uh do you have anything for me this weekend
0: uh, I will recommend uh, another horror movie that I watched for the first time this week, uh, which was the uh, 1957 movie, The Curse of Frankenstein, uh, which is Hammer Horror's version of the Frankenstein story, starring, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Cushing plays uh, Doctor Frankenstein and Lee plays the monster. It's very different from both the novel and the uh, the more famous Universal adaptation. It does a lot more to make Frankenstein a villain and uh, does a really good job of using Christopher Lee's particular physicality to make him both really kind of imposing and scary, but also somewhat kind of like pitiful. Uh, It's quite a heartbreaking movie in a lot of ways. Uh, It's kind of very dark. It really hews into exploring the idea of Dr. Frankenstein is the villain of the story, and like a lot of, you know, Hammer Horror of that period, it's very handsomely made, the sets are all lovely, the cinematography is great, it's just like a combination of a lot of great things. Not particularly scary, Mm. I would say, certainly not by modern day standards, but it's got great performances, it looks great, and I think it is really interesting to see an adaptation of Frankenstein that takes even greater liberties with the source material than the the universal one so that's uh, the curse of frankenstein over here in the us it's currently on hbo max they're screening a like fairly recent restoration of it i think that was done in the last couple of years which does look like really really spectacular so but if particularly if you're able to watch that restoration uh, it's it's a really gorgeous movie if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player and spotify all the usual places raises reviewers and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it is goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me.